Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 88 of Carol Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Get tickets now for our live Carol Pop event with two-time Oscar-nominated actor Michael Shannon, July 31st at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to evansonspace.com for tickets and information. Our Carol Pop guest this week is Eddie King-Roser, singer, songwriter, bassist, and guitarist for the band Urge Overkill. Roser, who still lives in the Chicago area, spoke with me last week on the 30th anniversary of the release of Urge Overkill's album, Saturation. This was before the death of Urge drummer Blackie Onassis, which was announced June 14th, the day before this episode drops. Our condolences go out to the family and friends of John Rowan, which was Onassis' real name, as well as to Eddie Roser, Nash Cato, and the rest of the Urge Overkill community. Saturation was this Chicago alt-rock trio's big swing of the bat as it moved to a major label, Geffen Records, after three albums for Chicago's Touch and Go label. Produced by the Philadelphia-based duo known as the Butcher Brothers, Saturation sounded crisp and flashy, which matched the band's lounge lizard cool and made a rock scene of drab flannel. The singles Sister Havana and Positive Breeding all but jumped out of the speakers, and they still do, along with the rest of the album. That summer of 1993 was a transformational one for Chicago's rock scene, as Saturation, Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville, and Smashing Pumpkins' Siamese Dream all came out within a two-month span. Urge Overkill sold a lot of records, but was it enough for the label? Or did the success of Nirvana beforehand and other bands afterward skew the expectations of what constituted success in the rock world? Roser has a theory about that, as well as memories of being on tour with Nirvana as Smells Like Teen Spirit and the album Nevermind broke through. Did Urge aspire to that level of fame? Roser and fellow Urge singer-songwriter-guitarist Nash Cato got together while students at Northwestern University. That's where they befriended previous Carol Pop guest Steve Albini, who produced their first and third albums, Jesus Urge Superstar and the Supersonic Storybook. Powerhouse drummer Blackie Onassis joined the band for Supersonic. Butch Vig, who like Albini would go on to work with Nirvana, produced Urge's second album, Cruiser. Albini became Urge's harshest critic when the band left Touch and Go for Geffen. Have the wounds yet healed between Roser and Cato and their former friend? Roser addresses this. He also discusses what it was like for the band to go to Philadelphia on a major label budget to work with Phil and Joe Niccolo, a.k.a. the Butcher Brothers. The production duo was known for their work with hip-hop artists such as Cypress Hill and Criss Cross. What was it about that sound that appealed to Urge? Did they get what they were after? What was the creative process like among Roser, Cato, and Onassis, who sings the song Dropout? Yeah, you're too old to cry, too young to die. How much did the band enjoy trying to live up to the expectations for saturation? Did they appreciate having to play with Paul Schaefer's band while appearing on Late Night with David Letterman? Was it a good thing that Quentin Tarantino prominently featured the band's cover of Neil Diamond's Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon in Pulp Fiction? Why was Urge's follow-up album, Exit the Dragon, such a dramatic, dark change of direction from saturation, despite the Butcher Brothers once again producing? What was Roser's issue with Cato at the time? Why does Roser sing the majority of the songs on Exit the Dragon and the early albums, but not Saturation? Exit the 
Eggs of the Dragon turned out to be Urge's last album with Onassis, with Roser and Cato reuniting to record 2011's Rock and Roll Submarine and last year's Weed. Will Urge tour again? We'll come around to Eddie King Roser's way of thinking in this Carol Pop conversation. Remind him to remind me how sweet the light. So happy anniversary. It's the actual anniversary day for saturation. There's a lot of talk of anniversaries around rock music that uh, really people wouldn't have. If you told people back in the day that there would be anniversaries for, you know, people were making records really for the moment. I guess we were hoping for something more timeless and uh, we lucked out or we were fortunate enough to have a record that is well known enough to be celebrated some 30 years later. Yeah, 30 exactly as of today. But it's interesting because I've talked to some people about, oh, did you ever imagine that this, you know, these pylon records or whatever, you know, would be talked about later? And it would be, and, and, and everyone's always like, no, no, I never thought about it. But I feel like Saturation actually was kind of one of those albums where you're like, this is built for forever, right? I mean, like you guys, that was a pretty ambitious attempt to make something that was going to last, I would guess. Yeah. And... I will say that, you know, it, it was a team effort. You know, the guy who had been following our career had been, grew up in LA and he was a, a DJ and he was, he had a pretty uh, eclectic taste. And he, he, he was DJing in uh, like raves in LA and he really knew what was going on. And, and, uh, he loved Brian Eno and he he literally went and found us when you couldn't buy a, a Moog synthesizer or or nobody wanted Fender Rhodes pianos. Our our uh AR guy found somebody who hoarded these things and shipped them to the studio for us. Nice. And he's like, you need this, you know, this is what's on the, you know, this this is what's on the Eno album. And and we, as you can tell. There are some pretty obvious uses of Moog synthesizer and uh, Fender Rhodes piano on the record. Right. It's like brand new toys that that we, I think, used judiciously. And it can be dangerous for a band like us to get a new toy because it can lead you astray. But I think we had enough people around to, to not overuse it, I hope. There had been one song with a synthesizer on it. Uh, as sort of a joke. Now that's the Bark Lords. There's it was a sort of an homage to sort of cheap cheap tricks. Sort of joke. We joked about their overuse of of keyboard on some famous songs that they had. That even now Rick Nielsen is like, well, I like the I like the live version of Surrender better because I hate those keyboards I put on uh, the studio version. What was I thinking? When you talk about saturation, we were really into, have always been, but we were sort of especially into Cheap Trick at that time and kind of how their backup vocals were. You know, the whole thing, it was, uh, when I think about saturation, I think about being how we sort of ripped off Cheap Trick at a couple of points. 
And we were very excited to tell them about it, <laughs> but we did. That was about when they were doing, uh, they were just kind of coming out of uh, one of their darker phases and we're back in the limelight. And they, they played, I think, a series of their records at Park West during the time when we were recording Saturation. Of course, that was uh, that was done over a series of of weeks where we went out to Philadelphia which is a new city to us, of course, but right. that was a pretty weird home of, home of the butcher brothers. You're a producer. Yes, the butcher brothers kind of a example of sort of marketing that the two didn't really team up on a lot of things. Um, but they called themselves the butcher brothers just because that was their, they were both studio owners. And uh, one of them was primarily rock. And one of them was pretty deep into hip hop and was working with uh Cypress Hill or he was he was he was helping DJ Muggs who was a pretty brilliant beat maker uh spent a lot of time in that studio so we had all of the techniques the the things that were brand new at the time that we didn't know how to work an MP3 or or it's called an MPC3 it's that you know, machine that they used to make hip hop on before computers, hmm. but the butchers had one and could use it like clockwork. So they were able to translate any of our sort of ideas. And they actually pushed that kind of stuff on us in a way that I think was beneficial, uh, just playing around, having fun. So it's actually Phil and Joe Niccolo. So they were into branding like you guys were. So they, uh, so, yeah. which, so which one? It's like Phil and Joe Necro, but it's Phil and Joe Niccolo. What, yeah. which, which was the rock guy? And did he end up working more with you or did they kind of split it? Um, yeah, Phil um, was more the rock guy. And he actually came when we got in and decided that we were going to work with them. We decided we needed to equip ourselves over at the, the bank where the band's the band's hideout, as it were. Uh, we had a full basement in this bank building in Humboldt Park. We decked it out with a cheap studio, and Phil came from Philadelphia to help us set up the studio. And we recorded uh, over a few days. He helped us produce and taught us how to sort of run this eight-track setup, which uh, some of those... The results of that are actually pretty much unchanged or on the album. For instance, Stalker is with a couple of vocals on top and some noise things that was recorded in the basement. Uh, that was recorded in Chicago by us. Hmm. OK. And and that was recorded by Blackie and myself, actually. Phil had gone, but he taught us how to use the studio. So he was more the rock guy. And uh, I think it's. It, they, they were both they both grew up with the Beatles and fascinated by most guys who own studios or back then would have similar stories as to how they figured out. Uh, it is documented pretty well, if you know where to look, how this was recorded or how that was recorded. If you look into the Beatles catalog and those guys were lucky enough to have similar equipment the neve sound the, the board that the, the the when people talk about the sound of 
those 60s recordings, they had a big board uh, that was called a, a Neve. That was, it looked like the control panel of a nuclear submarine. I mean, everything right. was huge. They're modular, so you can you can take the modules out and fix them. And one of those modules now is, is worth like $50,000. So they're, they're, people have taken them apart and used them just to, to some people would rather have one of those than 50 tracks, 50 uh, channels of, you know, mediocre electronics. But anyway, I'll never forget this. And I can't, I can't believe he did this. There or it was a hallucination, but he's like, I'll show you how, how tough this board is, like how strong these Neve board, boards are. And Bill got up on top of the thing and kind of jumped up and down with his shoes on. And I'm like, dude, you don't have to prove that to us. But that was how sort of bad. <laughs> he could have just said, I could jump yeah. on the, up and yeah, down. Like, but he actually just, did jump and I'll jump up and down. It's indestructible. And yeah, not really. You don't want to jump on the faders. It's not, it's not, it's indestructible, but it's also extremely valuable. At the time, this was before, you know, we knew how quickly even having a tape machine was going to become expensive, but they had the, the best technology at the time was still considered two inch tape. And, you know, basically that, that was the, the end of the, the days when most major label stuff was recorded on tape. And it's, as people may or may not know, it's similar to the film business where you're always rewinding, reloading the tape, sending the, the tape is the, the tape boxes are about t- twice as heavy as they look. So people are lugging tapes around and they're like lead because because they're uh, what's the what's the metal that it's it, it's iron oxide. So when you pick up a tape, it, it's it's twice as heavy as it should be. Right. That that's that added all these costs to. That's why records were so expensive and it was quickly democratized when you could make a record on a computer that sounded pretty good. That that probably wasn't technically possible in 1992 yet when we recorded uh, Saturation. And there's no question that the sound of when you hear, when studio geeks talk about the Neve sound or whatever. Uh, it's the sound of that saturation. Like for instance, 90210, there's only one guitar, there's a bass. You can really hear the air around it and everything has this honeyed, just pleasant sound to it that just pricks up your ears. That's the Neve sound. And I guess to this day, uh, the guy who does sound for Cheap Trick and this is a common thing where they used to use uh, Steely Dan's Asia to tune the to tune the 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 PA system before a live show. A lot of guys, you know, talk about what song they use. And uh, to this date, uh, Cheap Cheap Trick used Sister Havana to tune. Oh, nice! The, uh, proudly, I'm very proud to say. And uh, so that's that's a thing. If you can get your song in the pantheon of, you know. 
the song that sound guys want to hear to use the PA, you know, you did a mix, right? And that, that is one of my proudest talking points. I've got to say. So you'd done three albums at that point. You'd done Jesus Urge, Superstar, Cruiser, and The Supersonic Storybook. You had the EP Stall. And then you get signed to Geffen. Did you have these songs or some of these songs around already? Did you and Nash and Blackie have have a sense of this is what this album is going to be? Or did you sort of start off like, okay, now we have to write our big label album and you know the rules have changed and we're going to do this sort of thing now? I'd say number two, um, we, we didn't get signed on the strength of some demos that we did or, or, you know, said to Geffen that the guy who signed us there, what had been, had been aware of the band for quite a while and based in LA, he, he it took him a few years to find us and track us down. Apparently it was back in the day when you couldn't just, it, it was he, when he finally hooked up with the, us, he he's he's like, I've been meaning to sign you guys for a while. And he, he knew everything about the band and and had some ideas about what he would like to hear. And I think all of his a lot of his ideas um, in terms of if we only had a, you know, routine use of uh, some of these synthesizers and things like that. It might be fun. The album came uh, to to fruition after we were signed and we knew kind of who we were going to work with. There were a couple songs that were jammed on in Soundcheck. And one of them was basically just the the, the riff for uh, Sister Havana was something that we had around. And I remember jamming on that with that basic riff is basically kind of a it's kind of a Boston riff backwards or whatever. You don't want to think too hard about it. I mean, every song is another song or you know, that there's only so many combinations that rock, right? Right. If if you disqualified every song that sound like another song, you wouldn't have any songs. You wouldn't uh, have smells like teen spirit if you didn't have Boston either. I mean, if if you're gonna if you're gonna draw a connection. Yeah, you can't but so, so what? You know, it's a different but, song. Well, I remember jamming on that in a sound check and uh, it was in between. I, I think Chris Novoselic was up there too. And I think Nash started playing the, and, and he got on the bass. I, I I was backstage or something and I heard this riff. And I remember Novoselic saying, you know, that's your hit, you guys. That is a great riff. I can't stop playing this. So we had that riff. Before we were assigned to to Geffen, but I and I that's when Urge was touring with Nirvana. Yeah, we had a tour with them that was had been set up for a while in the U.S. At the time, you know, this is probably something people know, but you know, Geffen were kind of hoping that Nirvana could maybe be as big as Sonic Youth, and that was going to be a big success. You know, right. sell I don't know something around a hundred thousand records or or something like that. And they didn't even really have uh, Teen Spirit until towards the end. They were going to come out with um, Come As You Are, which is great. But uh, it, it it wouldn't have had the same franticness that Teen Spirit created. This franticness, which happened as we were on tour with them, just about when the record came out, we had started on a tour of the Midwest 
And I remember we were playing in uh, Columbus, Ohio, was the first gig. And Urge and Nirvana were basically about sort of co-headliners. It was sort of like, you know, Nirvana, if anything, we were a little better known in Columbus than uh, than uh, Nirvana was. And those guys watched us play. And, and uh, Chris says le- later that, I mean, I know at the, at, the, at the time we were a trio and we were pretty darn tight. And uh, and those guys definitely felt they were put on notice coming on after us. But in about two or three weeks, this thing happened where people were showing up at, because of MTV, people were showing up at these concerts and they couldn't get in and they would sell every T-shirt they had on them. And it just happened really fast. It was like touring with the Beatles in those movies, you see. There was a frenzy around the band that I can't imagine. I can understand how jarring that could be to one's life to just be this band that's on the level of all the other bands. And then all of a sudden, there was nothing else in our, no one else in our community really had that type of fame or frenzy around them, except for um, the Chili Peppers who'd been working at it for years. You know, they, they were, you know, they came by their hugeness, honestly, and, and had been touring like crazy for years. Right. And I guess the other band that was starting to get pretty big was, was Soundgarden. But besides that, there was none of these type of grunge bands were, you know, MTV was help making it happen, but there were some bands that were not legitimate that were that we didn't think were great that were mixed in there where nobody could tell the real thing from the, you know, the the not great fair that was maybe on MTV. But MTV had a huge pull at that time. And within the two weeks we were on tour with with uh, Nirvana, they they went from a band that was about as well known as urge, you know, fairly unknown to a worldwide phenomenon where people were at the show and they didn't know why they was just like, uh, like they started to see frat guys and it upset the band. Uh, by the time we, we did a round and by the time we got to St. Louis, they were like these, you know, they called them jocks showing up at the show and, you know, bouncing along with, with the song that was on, the radio and on and it, and they were sort of like wow kind of not what we signed up for like that that feeling of like i know you like my music but i i you know how can i let it be known that i don't like you <laughs> it did you know i think you know current i think developed sort of a feeling of like yeah i didn't get into this for to to make some frat guy jump up and down and it, you know, that's easy to come down on somebody to say, well, that's, that's what success is like. You, you don't think that far ahead. And I think that jarring sense of like these people who are strangers to what we are doing are showing up in mass droves just like that. And it was a, you know, it it was some amazing the energy made for some of the most amazing rock shows I've ever seen. So I don't know if you've seen, you know, Nirvana are a great band. You know, I've, I saw them at the Uptown with like six people and they're 
so powerful it's almost scary uh and like it's almost like they repelled the audience it was so ferocious but when you have you know three thousand mindless kids jumping up and down and the you know the band being so well oiled at that point they were you know probably played with more ease than any band i had seen or at least the singing usually we're not you know touring around you don't think you know we're touring with touch and go type bands like the butthole surfers the killdozer it's like the the technology wasn't such that the vocals could be the center of your show but kurt's voice i'll never forget how that cut through as be really being something special and he was always able to do that however bad the pas were and all that so some of the anthemic qualities or maybe a couple of the tempos i think we could say that we use the experience of touring with nirvana to sort of say well this kind of a groove gets things going we had done records that were pretty eclectic and done sort of without the sense for okay we're gonna have to get on stage and play these songs and is this gonna work we usually just kind of recorded whatever we at the last minute had that had ready and worried about about it later where there was some there was some conception in in making saturation that yes these are going to take the stage and they're going to have to fill the room we we had done our by necessity more eclectic uh music and the the sort of eclecticism of urge or the fun went into the interstitial parts of it which was an important and i think highly enjoyable part of the record that you kind of can't fake if you're trying to to do it because it's an idea you, it's very hard to fake that that uh interstitial things they stuck in and that right. was sort of the the butcher brothers did that sort of as an act of love uh, and that to show that that how much fun they were having is like they made those little things in between the songs for us just to make us smile we didn't really author the those those interstitial things where it's you know we talk about i think or i think we came up with we wanted hawaii 50 in there but the sort of the recording like they sort of recorded nash making a couple jokes and put the music behind it mary tyler moore Right. That was the stuff they did at night. We didn't see that stuff until you know Joe would came and say, "Yeah, I was up. Uh, I was up pretty late last night. I did. You know, I got a little present for you guys, and uh, put on this this loop of Mary Tyler Moore and Nash. You know, in his goofy voice saying, uh, "You know, they recorded the big leagues, and that was just uh, that was just sheer fun, and uh, it was uh, a real positive records recording records. It can either." It, it usually goes really great or it's no fun and you're kind of starting to plod along and this one we got up on the right foot right away there is huge pressure when you're hiring a producer and moving from the touch and go way of doing things to the you know whatever geffen way of doing things in our case there was no pressure or any any there were no there were no asks from the the label 
usually that comes later when you're done with the record. They're like, oh, you have to go back. And and that, that never happened with us, but it was a common thing that, that would happen. And we, we had a demo of uh, Sister of Anna. I think, I think we did Bottle of Fur. When Phil came and we recorded about half of the songs in the basement, and I think a couple of them are remain unreleased, but nothing really great there, but you could tell, you know, something really good could come out of this. We had a weekend booked in Philly to just see how it was going to work. I think it wasn't, it wasn't a concrete plan. Like this is going to happen. We came up with 90210, which is, uh, you know, partially we, we had the brand new key keyboard and it was a last minute thing where we were writing the lyrics. We had a van and we put our gear in the van and finished the song um, 90210 on the way to driving to Philadelphia. And we got there and, you know, they thought we were going to rock out and try to do this thing. And we, we, we thought we would throw them a curveball and do a ballad and where you can really hear that that shows the sound of the studio and it shows it's, it's easier to not fake it when you when you have a softer song that just came through you know basically it was about a day and a half we were there and we had this brand new song 90210 that was pretty sparse but they worked with us with putting there's some backwards there's a Beatles trick in it where you run the tape backwards and and do the 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 hi hat goes shoo, shoo, and all all these sorts of major changes in the song that are subtly bringing in another instrument. They were so psyched to work with a band that had, I guess, the aesthetic to want to do a record that sounded produced. And that was very much not the thing, you know, they, they were recording grunge bands and they, you know, they, there was a running studio. They had to work with whoever came in and they'd been doing a lot of, a lot of hip hop. So they were dying to work with some music outside of the box. Right. The, where you bring a real, you know, you're recording guitars and stuff. They weren't known for producing bands that use actual instruments. And they were as excited as we were about, we're not going to pretend this is a live recording. This is a, like a well-produced, well-thought-out thing. And we took way more time than we'd ever taken in putting on one song to make 90210 happen. And I remember we, we were coming back in the van a couple of days later, just amazed at the sound and what we did, there were things on it that we probably wouldn't have thought of, but these guys as producers, there are some tricks in it, but they're very much studio retro, nothing gag like about it. I mean, I, I feel like it comes off as a really tasteful thing. We're like, man, we did this without even really trying. It was just the trial run. Right. And we got 90210. It's like, it's amazing. And even the guitar is the, the guitar is is like slightly out of tune, but that was the take that had the most feel. And they insisted, and most, you know, most studio guys will cannot have that. They're like, our reputation is on this. We cannot have an out of tune guitar on 
you know, this first track we're doing. And they're like, no, you're going to keep that guitar in there because that's the right one. And I always, whenever I hear that, I, I'm sort of reminded of, you know, that was another call that that they helped craft the song and helped us not put too much stuff on it. What was the songwriting process with you guys? Like, would you each sort of come in with a song and help finish each other's songs? Or was it more like you're in a room together, kind of coming up with stuff together? We didn't have writing sessions, I guess. We spent a lot of time at the bank getting high or whatever. And when, when uh, inspiration took hold, at least we could have a place to lay things down and record things. But we had a pretty unofficial uh, way of doing things. For a lot of the tunes, it would be maybe a first part and part of the second part would either be me or Nash would have that and just kind of take it to the band. And then finally, at the end, you work on the the vocals and the lyrics. And we kind of did all that together. Often the lyrics are kind of finished writing in the studio. You know, we're kind of tossing around things at the last minute because that that's some songwriters have start with start with the the lyrics and all that, but we didn't really have that. Nash did have the the sort of story behind uh, nine hundred two one zero or the concept behind it with the the idea, and that that sort of actually came to him on a he was sitting on a hillside in L.A. with an acoustic guitar. He did come up with most of it, but. The refining of the ideas and the exact way the vocals went, that was up to the very last minute. That song was never demoed. That song was never played until we talked about it in the van all the way up. And so we didn't have anything to play them. And we're like, okay, we're going to start recording the song. Usually you show up to a big studio and you've got five demos of of every song. You know, you've been worked on it and they trusted urge enough and we we didn't really have that much preparation one of the reasons the stuff sounds fresh is because it hadn't been done to death now some of the other like more songs that are that we had before had been demoed once and most people i think if you're signed to a company they make you demo the hell out of stuff or at least that was how i understood that the labels had enough juice to push bands around. And I think when we did our label and thing, we knew that Sonic Youth had this, had the very wide open, they had complete, you know, executive control and Nirvana was able to get that. And we were able to get that from Geffen, which is a reason that we didn't, sign for twice as much money for some other label. We were, we were offered huge amounts of money on other labels without that control cause, uh, I believe. And we sort of felt like we trusted, you know, again, it was more Sonic Youth's label than, than Nirvana's at the time. And our, our side of it wasn't the DGC. We actually worked with a guy who had nothing to do with, with the, the Sonic Youth crowd. It was a guy who had been working with their other side, which was more, uh, you know, they, they put out some metal records. So our DJ, our guy was 
sort of an assistant for the that guy, John Kolodner, for a while. When Geffen got into the hair metal stuff, he was a guy who's been around all these famous metal recordings and apparently dresses like a wizard. Okay. Yeah. He he's should. The, he's the wizard guy and our A&R guy, who's very much not like that, who was more of a record collector like DJ guy was, I guess his musical knowledge uh, did enough to impress him, but that was our guy. So we had, we had a real champion at that label and you don't always, you can't always and never trust, you know, what, what people are going to say that, Oh, they love your band and they've been following it all. But we had enough on this guy to know, he knew enough, enough about our music to have actually cogent things to say about it. And one of the reasons we ended up on that label and to have the, you know, the sort of positive start we did in the world of whatever major label recording was that we made that choice and we made some sacrifices that were to do with are we going to have control of our music or not? Because sure enough, we'd heard of a lot of horror stories and it's, it's true at the time there, there were many a band who would go in and record their record. And if, if, if they didn't like it, it could just sit and you could have your record never released. That was a common thing to have in record contracts. Like this doesn't have to come out. And I think we made pretty major financial sacrifices to not have anything like that in our contract. And at the time it ended up being for our band, it was great. And I can't imagine anything like saturation coming to be without those two particular guys and that studio and that environment. It just was a one-time deal with all the, we didn't know those guys and we didn't, we probably would have recorded the the record with Butch Vig if, if it hadn't been for this the DJ uh, or our A&R guy saying, let's really try something interesting. And I don't think that would have been the great greatest idea for us. When we did record a, a record with Butch Vig, he did have a lot of crazy and great ideas on it. It's a Maracruiser. It's, right. our, yeah. it's just enough to be an LP, but... It's really an EP. It's it's. Uh, I don't know how much music is on it, but we did uh, have limited time, and he did uh, have a lot of great ideas uh, in a similar way in terms of experimenting and going for the craziest ideas we wanted to to do. The, the fortuitous uh, event was kind of writing a song and not having a demo or an idea of where this song was going to go to show up at their studio and to sort of come out with this, you know, kind of magical recording to us, you know, 90210 was sort of a self revelatory thing. It overshot our expectations for what we were going to get out of that weekend. And it was not going to be like a single on the record, but it really showed how we could work together and this could be, really fun, inspirational, and easy. It's your album closer. There was some ease to it. And these guys are, you know, they're they're sort of urban Philly guys who who 
they'd been dealing with their studio in a pretty rough part of town for years. It was basically in this nasty basement and, you know, they were, they had been doing this things the same way for, for years. And they had the, we showed up and they had their pizza place and their hoagie place, you know, that their uh, place that had the Philly steak sandwiches and, and all that stuff. Gotta was, get your cheesesteak. It was a whole thing where we kind of stepped into this, you know, pretty urban environment, which wasn't, it wasn't our, you know, we, we weren't unfamiliar with it, but in terms of being around guys who actually facilitated hip hop and had been doing that as their bread and butter was really fun because they were kind of sick of it. And we wanted to maybe work with somebody who wasn't bored to tears being a recording engineer is a grind and it's a bunch of guys playing the same you know if, if you're if you have a good business you're going to have a lot of people coming in there it's maybe not that exciting but they were as excited as we were to interface with these total freaks that they would have never met before it, you know it creates several triangles of influence between when you have sort of two producers who all have different skills and have good ideas and then the three of us i think created things and it gave those guys time to maybe when we were in doing you know vocals take a long time they didn't both have to be there you know phil would help us sit all night and do vocals joe would be at home you know chopping together some one of those interstitial things or working on some funny th or, or working on the beat. He actually helped us with the beat for, um, dropout. Yeah. So it, it, that, that worked out really well too. And that's, that's usually not a great thing where unless they're brothers and are used to working together, like a co-producer thing, it can create problems with who's really the boss. Right. And they had a pretty good way of working and they didn't need us. You know, they, they were, like Joe was remixing some stings. He had the tape from Roxanne. He had some contract with Sony. They were sort of working with us kind of for fun. You know, it was a side, they, they were just fine. They were not concerned about, oh, is Gavin gonna like it? Or in fact, we actually, you know, actively fucked with the with the A&IR guy where we recorded, you know, a joke track back in the day when you could have a hidden track at the end of a CD, there is one on saturation, right? Yeah. Like 20 minutes, 20 minutes in or something like that. Yeah. So <laughs> the first time the, the A&R guy came in, so we recorded what we thought was like the worst song, like the most unpalatable song you could record. And we, we had him come in like totally straight face. Nobody broke character. We're like, you know, kind of working on a new direction for this record. And we played Operation Kissinger for him, like for real. And uh, he totally didn't get the joke. I could tell he started, he was started sweating and he's sort of like, oh my God, this is a disaster. And we let him sort of stew in it for a while. We're like, we fucking totally got you. It was one of those, you should have seen your face thing. Right. Because if you listen to Operation Kissinger, it is terrible. And it doesn't sound like Urge or anything. And That's I, why it's I, hidden. 
we were hoping he could say, oh, my God, this is terrible. What's wrong with you guys? But in true A&R person session fashion, he's like, he wasn't going to say that in front of us, apparently. He's like, in fact, he was speechless. Well, but there you that go. Was a, that was a funny part of the, that's where that came from, uh, the, the hidden track was our attempt to really frighten our A&R man. <laughs> there you go. And I think it did. Well, you, got, you got Kissinger in the t- title, so that's a yeah. that's a good giveaway. When you, when you went into making this record, by the way, did you know like which songs Nash were gonna was going to sing and which ones you were going to sing and like what the balance of those were going to be was going to be I don't think we were done enough to to have things divvied up like that we we didn't end up with extra songs or too many tracks that didn't make it on there but it's sort of like may the best tune win we we tried to just construct the the thing that was going to be the best you know at the time, we had some techniques because back in the day, if you had a song that you could both sing on or kind of do a co-lead vocal, we had sort of developed doing a lot of that. A couple of the songs are have both King and Nash vocals. Tequila Sunday has that. Yeah. And, you know, that that's what we just in the... In, in the era of like trying to get as much vocal presence in the live show, we tried to both be singing as much as possible. There was no extra songs really to plan out. Oh, is this balance right? Or, or it worked itself out naturally. It was a surprise that, that there was a, a, a blackie vocal. I think he went in uh, one night with one of the, one of the guys who was helping, there was a guitar tech, there were, I'm I'm going to say probably drugs involved, but, you know, he showed up in the morning with this pretty good, pretty done version of this tune. We're like, wow, that's really, that's a good song. We've got to put it on the record. To keep her. It was kind of a surprise. Yeah. That wasn't a plan. Like, oh yeah, the drum will go the song too. He just sort of up and did it and good for him. Like Exit the Dragon and some of the earlier albums, you'll have maybe more of the lead vocals. Uh, Saturation, Nash has more of the lead vocals. Is there a competitive aspect to that between the two of you? Or is it really like, that's just how it worked out on this record versus this record? That's just how it worked out, obviously. I mean, we've always been able to kind of balance that stuff out without a lot of ill feeling. I think... Everyone wants to have, you know, if you're a songwriter, you want to hear your stuff and you want to hear your voice and stuff like that. But I remember, you know, during that time where I had some damage from from singing, over singing so much. And in our touring, when the band started out, I used to sort of sing a lot more. And my my voice was just kind of not as durable so I think, you know, Nash kind of has one of those voices where he, he can smoke all night and he can he can sort of or or did. But um, and I, I sort of was going through a, a thing with my vocal where it was I, I had a sort of a medical issue at not a great time. Mm. So I was I was less interested in pushing my stuff and probably during the time of saturation. 
I, I probably wasn't as in great of a shape to, to sing vocals. And then, you know, with the next next record, it sort of happened where where Nash wasn't or didn't come with as many tunes that we thought were going to make the grade as I did. And it just so happens, you know, maybe on the next record, I that's always how it's been, you know, at, at the beginning. You know, it's it's a tough thing to have this kind of, uh, if you will, uh, Lennon McCartney thing of like who's the singer and who's the. It doesn't always work, and in the in the case of Urge, I think it, it did work. And most bands just can't withstand that type of delegating. You know, who's the. In the end, I think we may have had. We certainly wouldn't have been as interesting of a band. But I think not having a lead singer made Urge like the Beatles, you know, maybe more interesting and maybe led to a quicker demise than it's not easy to sustain that. Right. Uh, the bigger you get, the more people get confused by that. You know, it's just one of those things that I have to sort of say that the things that make urge interesting or why anyone's listening today are exactly the same as they had to happen in a certain way. And we have multi vocalists and we have multi everything, you know, if we had if we had were able to be like Weezer and find a song sound and fucking pound it into the ground, that's really the ultimate thing you want to do with <laughs> rock band is like, it's unrecognizable. That's, you know, that's guided by voices. That's it's urge. Isn't like that. I guess we, uh, accepted that long ago, but you, you know, you see these other bands sort of that have one sound, it really makes it easier, but we've never been, we've never been about making things easy. In fact, if there's some way we could fuck up the expected thing to that a band would do, that was sort of our stock in trade is to do what you're not supposed to do. Another hero? Yes, you do, if it's a Hero IPA from Revolution Brewing. The Chicago-based superbrewer offers an array of heroes, no special effects needed. Leading the pack is Antihero IPA, the classic that built Revolution with its crisp, clean bitterness and massive floral and citrus aromas. Hazy Hero, Illinois' number one hazy IPA, boasts a smooth, velvety body and big, fruit-forward flavor. And the balanced new Infinity Hero features exciting next-generation hop varieties. It's time to choose your hero. Did you guys always see it as like the power of three, you know, and having it a trio as opposed to you having four people? We did um, utilize that power of three. And I, I think it's had it been possible for us to, to remain a, a three piece and still grow. Um, I I enjoyed that dynamic a lot more, but sort of being a guitar player and I'm sort of coming up with stuff that Nash sort of can't really cover. It's, it's multiple parts stuff. 
we sort of drifted into just sort of saying, well, I got to be on guitar too, because these parts are so important. But that, that also was, I think, an unfortunate transition in the band when we, and I'm going to say we, we couldn't go out as a three piece and, and convincingly do the songs on saturation. We didn't think about that on the time at the time, but we had already started to go out with uh, uh, extra guitar player uh, before we, re we recorded that, I think. But originally we did have, um, we, we did have a guitar player and I played bass and that didn't seem to make as much sense as me playing the, my parts on guitar and hiring a bass player is easier. But that was the original UO idea was a trio. And there is a power in that. And I really love that. And I think it, it's just one of the, you know, are you going to have saturation or not? We, we sort of decided that our sound was more, we needed more of like a cheap trick type. Of course, there's one singer in cheap trick, but we needed, it just wasn't going to work with, with one guitar. And right. that's just aesthetic choice that we made. I think it did, you know, upset every band changes. But you do uh, bring up a cogent point there where we went kind of from a trio that everybody knew to three guys and and there's a fourth guy in uh, playing bass and they we always found some character either they were like a pal of ours or we found this guy Chuck Trees he was in he was hanging around the studio and we got to be pals with him you know, he's a, he's a talented drummer and he's a multi-instrumentalist. And we just sort of, we didn't want to get stuck flat footed. So we asked him pretty early on in the making of saturation, did you ever want to go on, on the road with urge? And he was very excited about that. He went out uh, on our saturation tours and joined us in, at the bank and, you know, who knows what kind of scars he he bears these days from that, but I haven't been in touch with him. I remember seeing you guys play Positive Bleeding on Letterman. And of course, Letterman, they would make you play with their whole band. So you got you got Blackie on the congas while it's Paul Schaefer and his band, and then you know, the two of you as well. Was that fun to do that, or was it annoying that they made you play with their band? It might have been a situation, I'm not positive about this, where if there was ever a a band that that could make the most of playing with Letterman's band, it's probably was Urge and having Blackie on the congas because there are there is a strong conga track on the record on the absolutely song. yeah, and that just the visuals of it are great and we we might have tried it with Blackie with a drum kit. I don't know. It depended on how much juice you had. I think you know. There's like a Paul is the music director. And I think he sort of maybe made the call like, look, we're, we've got five minutes. This way isn't working. We're going to we're going to have Anton play the drums. And I, I think it was something that was kind of a last minute thing. I don't know if that was the when we showed up at Letterman and we knew what was going to happen. It sounded well rehearsed. Well, those guys can play anything. They just right. they hear it once. It's incredible. It wasn't rehearsed. It was it was more like, I think we were trying to do it and it just wasn't, you know, we hadn't been in the game of playing as a four person without the monitor. You're saying you're in a TV studio. 
I think it was the quickest way to make sure we were going to get a, a great performance. I think we all ended up being pretty happy and it did bring us some benefits because the band did play uh, and learn positive bleeding. They loved the tune and they wanted to play on the tune. They thought it makes them look cool. And Paul continued to play positive bleeding for years on the run-ins. But sometimes when they come back in from recur from rehearsal, many for years, they were playing positive bleeding. And I'm like, okay, well, that's one plus of having the band actually have learned it and played it. They got to enjoy it. And I guarantee if we didn't have like Anton and the band playing along with us, they would never have bothered with it. There you go. Was this whole process of having the album come out and all of the expectations and playing these late night shows and other shows and concerts and everything, was this was it fun overall or did it did it also was it also nerve wracking or all of the above? It was fun and it was also just kind of scary because you don't expect the stakes to ever get that high. I mean, until Nirvana became what they became, there was nobody I knew who could manage to buy a house or several houses just from playing guitar or, you know, playing drums in a bit. I mean, we didn't hang out with people like that. The stakes were not to the point where it's like, this is going to like really change my life. That really messes with you because you just want to, you, 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 you're doing this thing for no stakes. You're like, I'm in this van. I'm going to, I'm going to be playing to a hundred people or six people. We're doing it. You know, I know in movies they talk about the stakes, but it really does mess with, you know, what's going on in the, in the back of your mind. And when the stakes go up, yeah, you're, you're, you're more nervous and you might need to take more of whatever it is you take to take the edge off. And thus the cycle goes like that. It's in every, every, uh, behind the music ever made. It's like that's because the stakes change, people change and things can happen that aren't great. And some people make through it. Some people are now dead because of it. I think there were moments of incredible fun and a lot of laughter. I, I know that we've toured with a lot of bands that have maybe considered it a grind and, and, had not been talking to each other and were just kind of doing it. Once that was the case with Urge, we, we were like, we're not going to do this. I know there are bands that do this and they most of them do this, where they would rather be doing anything else than being on stage with this band that they've kicked it out with for 30 years. But I think having that trio aspect of it was, you know, it was us three against the world for the longest time. And the the fun was really uh indescribable i mean i thought there was more laughs in the urge van than than just about any other band you could find mm -hmm. and everybody wanted to hang out with with urge and that's where the fun was i mean that's that's how we got our tour with with uh nirvana and and pearl jam they took us out when they were probably the biggest band on earth uh for for a bunch of shows and we had a lot of fun with them too. And, you know, I, I did grow to respect them as a, as players. 
Were you guys so, affected by the you know sort of backlash coming from Chicago Wicker Park scene and like oh they left Touch and Go and you know Steve Albini complaining about it publicly? Did that stuff affect you or were you just kind of like come on? Having been so sort of deeply involved with Steve that it it was you know it was kind of a, a cloud hanging over uh, you know it, it was hard to just ignore that there was this back I mean. Look, if you're big enough to get back, get a backlash, and that's more than we could ever hope with that somebody cares enough to be complaining about how we're conducting ourselves in a publication, that's rock music. Some of it was, I think, more painful because at least myself and Nash and Steve were, were pretty good friends, actually, and we had a lot of laughs together. And, you know, Steve has a very specific rules of engagement for music is like, thou shalt not make music to make money for one's career. It should be punk rock is a habit and an attitude and a lifestyle and professional musicians suck. At that time, that was a legitimate thing that many people could throw at somebody like us saying, who do you think you are? You want to used punk rock to make money, which is no, we were into music and back rack and the tradition of entertainment and rock and soul and, and all this stuff. I think it was a misreading of what Steve never stepped out of being a punk, but we never promised anybody that we were, we, we were 100% DIY or, or whatever. And I think in some ways, because of the the label, Corey and Steve kind of shared this this sense of they ba- basically didn't do publicity. Like, if you're not cool enough to find our label, fuck you. We don't need you. And it was literally they successfully did that. And Corey did, I think, due to we've been work with working with uh, Beth Weiner, who was actually went in there and said. Corey, you gotta, you gotta hire somebody to get make people know about your music. And he actually did change and he did hire a couple of people. And I think it helped his label. It wasn't always a flat no. We begged for money to make a video. And we broke him down and we made this video for for nothing. And it was uh far out ski and it was really goofy and funny and fun, but it, it helped build the urge and and urge ended up because I think he did have sort of a change of heart due to our influence uh, to, to just be a little bit more customer friendly and, you know, touch and go is probably thrive. They probably did better on urge than anybody else. And, you know, so in the end we got the last laugh, I guess. And we were very fortunate to have, worked with touch and go but there was a bizarre kind of anti i guess they would call it careerist or whatever you're familiar with the term what is it selling out that was like yeah if somebody convinced you of uh somebody said you're selling out it didn't feel good i mean that's not what we felt like we were doing but that was a like a legitimate criticism you could throw at people and yeah it did hurt and it was unfair well, but, and it's coming from where you came from, you know, it's like having your your family 
complain about you. Um, so, so yeah, that's going to affect you for sure. That's the thing. It was more than it was coming from former friends. So yes, it's, it's, you know, still smarts. Was there, was there any fence mending down the road over these last 30 years or is it still like, that's the sort of where it ended up? Well, I think with, with Corey, we're definitely are good. You know, I, um, Corey Russ, the owner of, uh, touch and go, uh, he's moved out of Chicago, but in the end, we still work together on licenses and, and he re-released, re-release our records and he's, I think has moved on, but, it, but in terms of Steve, you know, we, we don't, you know, we, we, we haven't really discussed it since, since we sort of fell out of, uh, this has happened between Steve and a lot of people, if you care to know the truth. And, and I, you know, to this day, I have to say, Steve is the guy who was very generous uh, to our band. He needed a band to, to learn how to run the studio. And we were sort of around. He had a job at least, and he paid for our early recordings and selflessly worked for hours and hours with a bunch of stoned idiots to make it into something great. I, I'm not gonna uh, begrudge the guy for that. He's There aren't a lot of people who, I guess, can afford to stick to their, what's the word, principles. But I know a lot of people who are a lot lower on Steve than I am, because they weren't there when he did what he did to help our band. When you guys finished Saturation, you finished touring for it, and then you did Exit the Dragon uh, two years later, also with the Butcher Brothers. What was the mindset going into that one compared to Saturation? Well, there had been a huge change, and uh, all I can say is, yeah, that there there had been, you know, we we all had enough, I guess, finances to spend some more time apart. So we we did have we didn't sit around, you know, saturation was before anything had happened, and we had spent all this time sort of preparing for sort of before the storm and. The next record was was kind of after the storm and everybody was in a different place and we hadn't spent very much time together as a band. Nash was dating an international rock star for a year and basically disappeared. He was he was jet setting the entire time. I'm not going to say but part part of the reason the Exit of the Dragon sounds the way it did is because the songs really were were written more in isolation or really in the studio and we 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 were less seeing eye to eye on things and you know i had made a really hard decision that we did saturation and therefore this record is going to sound nothing like saturation which i will say was maybe kind of a dumb thing to do officially <laughs> now our hardcore fans and many of them, I think it's a, a real portrayal of where we were at the time and is an artistic success, but it was too much on its head. And with maybe it's an album, maybe with a different lead singer even, and that's not what like a record company knows what to do with, you know, and people just didn't quite, people wanted more saturation. 
you know, Nash kind of didn't have much to say because he was he was literally on a party trip with with uh, with Chrissy Hine, which was great. I'm sure he had the greatest time of his life, but <laughs> showed up and it was sort of like, Nash, what do you got? And it was basically nothing. And we had to scramble. And the results are, you know, a record that sounded more like exactly what I wanted. And uh, it was an attempt to not sound like saturation, which maybe we should have done two saturations and then gone to the next one. I don't know. But it was a completely different situation. And the studio had moved. The Butcher Brothers weren't things had changed for them. They maybe didn't have such a chummy relationship. They bought a huge building with way too much square footage in the suburbs. It leaked. We were staying in a suburban hotel while we were making it. So everything changed and probably not in a great way for the, the making of that record. Like they're, they're not like little bits like, Oh, that's oh, a fun little bit. Listen to how much fun they were having in the studio. And when we weren't about to fake fun and, you know, we, we were, I'm very proud that we made something that I, you know, I consider an artistic success and it's, it's an honest, you know, portrait as there can be, as the darkness was honest, we came by honestly and exit the dragon, the lightness and the light heart and the idea that everything's possible and the celebration in saturation is the truth as well. Yeah. I feel like Exit the Dragon is an album that sort of that holds up really well. And I think people sort of look back on that one now as at least some do or a bunch do. Certainly fans of Urge do will say, oh, that's kind of this cool, dark record that at the time it was like because people were expecting saturation to it threw everyone off. But there's a grittiness and realness to it that I that I feel like. Right. And, and most bands will won't can't make a U-turn like that. And I guess we had a career of making, well, one song would often have very little to do with the next song. And I think that it's not easy to love a band like that. A few people are going to love a band like that, but it's, it's hard. It takes, takes a few listens. And that is the kind of record that, that uh, exit the dragon is. And I, I agree with you and I, I appreciate that comment. And I think, yeah, that's a really easy footnote to sort of say, oh, Saturation was this success and Exit the Dragon was a failure when actually what happened was the label were absolutely convinced that Saturation was going to be a multi-million selling, you know, smash hit. And they did everything they could. They they gave us every budget we wanted. They they All the advertising, everybody lined up behind. They truly loved that record. And perhaps it was a bit ahead of its time or for whatever reason that, you know, 300, which would be a huge success today, was not considered uh, the success that they expected. So by the time the next record came by, that was really different. They were, even though there were people who understood Urge and loved that record, it was just kind of a thing where, we gave, we threw everything at them with saturation and it didn't come out to be a dominating thing sales wise, you know, culturally it was successful. It was successful for us, but, um, and I'm not going to complain about the numbers and we, we were played on them, but it didn't, it didn't reach the point where 
what a record company wants to see where a band is launched and everybody knows about it. And they were so sure that that was going to happen that they sort of convinced us that that was going to happen. And when that didn't happen, really, I mean, we were sort of walking around after saturation thinking this kind of wasn't really a success when just shows how you how twisted your perspective can get when actually it was a huge success that had to beat all these odds to even happen and right. to be as great as it did. And that that's the irony there is like we had uh this perceived success and certainly every musician and every urge fan was was aware of it but in terms of really breaking through to like really young people who like like stone temple pilots and don't even know why and what it's about you need those people you need like these 13 year old kids to buy your records and urge was just a little bit too sophisticated a little bit too early for that and the humor for whatever reason wasn't as dumb as we i love weezer or whatever but they kind of broke through in a way that are they were on the same label as as urge they thought urge was going to be weezer for sure and weezer was a total uh surprise oh there was one guy who sort of came from the mailroom who's like this is a great you know band and no they are a great band and they did work their way up but there were a couple other things that happened after saturation that did so much better that no one expected and the label actually didn't even really care about counting crows um you know <laughs> that kind of upset things for us timing wise and that's part of the story that i guess isn't told that that i just sort of only recently figured out after years of thinking about it right and then you're the pulp fiction thing 94 the year after saturation taking an older neil diamond cover right um so that boosted your profile albeit for not the record you would just put out right and sort of not the same it's it's a version of the band that had really passed or it was i guess for us it was uh it was not representative of where we wanted to go but it was by far the biggest so this this happens to bands their one hit wonder is is you know at least it wasn't uh a gag or what's the word for it uh joke song or some novelty novelty it, it wasn't that but but in terms of its effect on the band internally and people's idea of the band it wasn't maybe the greatest thing it's not a script we would have written and that continued to make things weirder uh going into the next record so it didn't help it actually hurt to some extent yeah i mean look i i think we're better off for for it having happened and it, it did it, it's good to to be in a movie and you get paid for so financially it was great but i think it did set the band on things had already gotten pretty dark and i think the confusion of you know that song now being our the song you know especially internationally that's what people thought urge overkill was was not what we liked would have liked but that's a good point and uh thanks for bringing it up there was the pulp fiction thing in there which is which was very important and a whole different story that was just a, a glorious fun thing that happened i mean if you'll notice none of those songs are are newer bands 
they I think they wanted to have the Neil Diamond version in there. And when Neil heard that it was going to be played over an overdose scene, he told them, I don't want this. Don't use my song in the movie. This is one story that we got. This is the one that I happen to believe. And then they they realized miraculously somebody was like, there's another version that sounds pretty much the same. And that's when they got a hold of us. Now, I think there's some other spin on the classic tale of, oh, it was discovered by, uh, you know, maybe the song was brought to mind because the director Tarantino was telling a story that, oh, I found this urge record in Amsterdam and it had this girl who be a woman soon on. Perhaps he did. And that map, that's how he knew about the song. The song was a hit in Europe, but it was not a well-known song here. I think we did benefit from the fact that that Neil Diamond didn't. And, and what supports my theory is that all of the music on the soundtrack is old, except for Urge. And Urge just happens to sound old because we used tape and we used old fashioned machinery to record it. In you know, that's that's what we had. We recorded it with Kramer and he put this old fashioned piano on it and it worked. It's creepier for the movie, actually, than Neil Diamond's actual version by far. Yeah, and but, you got that twangy tremolo guitar on. Yeah, it's out of tune. And yeah, everything's just barely. You know, we played the song a couple of times. We had no copy of the song and it was sort of a last minute thing because we were out of songs that we somebody had purchased that at a at a used record store and we didn't even have a reference of the song when we recorded a girl you'll be a woman soon it was from memory and we just were sort of like well you couldn't just bring it up on the internet we didn't have a copy of it we just kind of played it and that's why it sounds like it's falling apart it's because hmm. we weren't really serious it was just kind of like well, this is a great song. And once we started going on it, Kramer, who had, had got into it, he's like, you guys, this is your hit. We're like, what are you talking about? He's like, this has something. So then once we recorded it, we put some time into it and he put a piano on it and we had a toy piano that we put on it. Uh, but that was sort of at Kramer's suggestion that we actually made it as good as it was. His weird proclamation turned out to be true. Because at the time, Urge wasn't the kind of band that would have a hit. It's like, what are you even talking about? We're like this punk rock band. We're on Touch and Go. There's no hits. He's like, this song is a hit. I'm telling you. You know, he was so high. He he had one of those, you know, breathe th those things you mat. You, you used to smoke with a mask. Like, uh, <laughs> he was doing that constantly regarding our record. So... Some people can get away with it, I guess. Wow. Making we like anything about like sort of the process of making we and how that was different or updated for, you know, yeah, it's, uh, now. Nowadays, you can take something from years ago and alter it. And it's not so hard to locate. We was kind of constructed from some bones of how people do things nowadays. Completely different where you've got a hard drive with all your stuff on it. And that can give you uh, inspiration to sort of change things or, or use something that's maybe a drum track that's 10 years old even and write a whole song over it 
and it sounds great. You have your material at hand. It's not boxed up in some tape and you have to go get it and put it on the tape machine. And so we were able to do it because the technology has changed so much. The band has uh, people who want our stuff. We're working on more material. We've got T-shirts out there. I believe there may be some demand for the medallions, but I know the UO logo T-shirt which we sort of ran out of and couldn't find the just the regular UO, like the Kurt Cobain one, that is newly reproduced, if you care to. We called it hot dog fever, but we couldn't find the hot dog fever photo on the back. But mm. those in the know, they'll know what the hot dog fever photo uh, looks like. Any performances coming up or is that on ice? I can say that at at this point, they're only in the planning stages. So I've got no uh, concrete. We have offers to play. And I think right now we're considering our options. But I'm I'm very happy that, you know, the last record got some some good mentions. And I was even happy to see one of the guys who does cooking for the New York times said that he was doing some cooking to the new urge album. But, but for me to get a mention, any mention in the New York times is great for me. That's just the kind of guy I am, but there, there you go. It, made, it, made, it, it didn't make headlines, but it made the New York times unhappy. Awesome. Well, you know, it's, it's a good record too. It sounds like you guys still. So yeah, I was kind of amazed to the degree, but we had basically forever to to think about it and i'm i'm glad we did get it right especially we had everything ready to go then there was a snafu over the artwork which took forever to get right but i think it is right now and it may not be forever till the next uh urge record but uh you'll guess i guess you'll have to tune in elsewhere to get updated on that thank you so much eddie it's great, great talking to you i appreciate it good luck with podcast that's all for episode 88 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Eddie King-Roser for telling such vivid stories of the making of Urge's timeless breakthrough album and for taking us back to that great rock year of 1993. Celebrate the 30th anniversary of Saturation by buying it on vinyl or CD. And you can also download and stream it. Urge's latest album, We, that's the French word, also is widely available. Go to urgeoverkill.com to buy merch and listen to the music. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who knows everything don't need to be the same. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events. Tickets are on sale now for my July 31st onstage Carol Pop conversation with actor-singer-director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to evansonspace.com for more information and to buy tickets. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.